The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. If you would take your Bibles and open up to the book of Colossians. We're in Colossians for today. And while you're turning there to Colossians chapter 1, just share with you an illustration from a book by Kevin DeYoung called uh, Why We Are Not Emergent. He asked this question. He says, is a head still a head if it doesn't have a body? Is a basement still a basement if there's no house on top? Is a friend really your friend if he can't stand your wife? According to First Print Industry, the church is God's building with Jesus Christ as its foundation. Who wants to live in a basement without the rest of the house? No one I know except for the Christians who want Jesus without the church. Any husband worth the paper his marriage license is printed on will be jealous to guard the good name of his wife. Who wants a friend that rolls their eyes and sighs every time your wife walks into the room? Apparently, some people believe that Jesus wants friends like that. They roll their eyes inside over the church. The Bible also tells us that the church is the body of Christ with Jesus himself as the head. I suppose in the world of science fiction, a head can exist in a vat hooked up to a car battery or something. But in the real world, most of us don't see too many heads apart from their bodies. If we ever did, I imagine our first instinct would not be to cuddle up with the little cranium and sing a love song. That would be a strange sight. Strange though it may be, it is not unusual, at least for some Christians. The narrative has become so commonplace you could mad lib it. I'm not sure if you've ever tried that game, mad lib. It's like, you know, provide a noun, provide an adjective, provide an adverb, and, you know, you give different words, and then you come out with some kind of crazy story. He says the institutional church is so, you know, insert negative adjective. When I go to church, I feel completely negative emotion. The leadership is so totally negative adjective, and the people noun that starts with un. The services are adjective you might use to describe going to the dentist. The music is adjective you would use to describe the Barney song. The whole congregation is choose among passive, comatose, or hypocritical. The whole thing makes me medical term. I had no choice but to leave the church. My relationship with spiritual noun is better than ever. Now I meet regularly with my relational noun and talk about positive noun and Jesus. We really care for each other. Sometimes we even choose among pray for each other, feed the homeless together, or share power tools. This church is like it was always meant to be. After all, insert where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of you, or the letter kills but the spirit gives life, or we don't go to church, we are the church. I'm not saying everyone needs to do what I've done, but if you're tired of compound phrase that begins with institutional or ends with as we know it, I invite you to join cool title and experience spiritual noun like you never will by sitting in, choose among wooden pews, steepled graveyard or stained glass mausoleum week after week. When will the biblical noun start being the same biblical noun? When we think about the Lord, to love the sheep is to love the shepherd. To love the sheep is to love the shepherd. 
In John 21, verses 15 and 17, Jesus asked Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Remember that? Do you love me? And three times Jesus directed him to his sheep. Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. If Peter was going to demonstrate his love for Christ, it was going to be demonstrated through very practical, tangible, observable love for Christ's people. It was not going to be through some kind of mystical, mysterious work that nobody could see. To serve the body of Christ is to serve Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 37 to 40, Jesus said, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when do we see you a stranger, invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. To persecute the body of Christ is to persecute Christ. Paul discovered that when the church was, that the church was connected to Christ when he was on the Damascus Road. Jesus called out, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he recognized that to persecute the people of Christ is to persecute Christ. And if we as a church are going to demonstrate our love and devotion to Jesus, it can't be divorced from a love and a devotion to the body of Christ. To love the members of the king's family is to love the king himself. Matthew chapter 12, 48 to 50, Jesus answered, the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he says, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, we find an example of a man who not only loves the person of Christ and the word of Christ, but he demonstrates that love for the body of Christ. And that's what we find in the, the book of uh, uh, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, let's start at verse 24 together. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share in, on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the, the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also, I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and uh, Father, we are grateful for this, your word. Now, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through it, uh, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things in your word. Now, Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to, to have the, the heart of Paul in regards to the church. Now, Father, that we would demonstrate a, a love for Christ by a love for the church by a sacrificial love for the body of Christ. And Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Colossians has been called one of the most Christ-centered books of the Bible, if not the most Christ-centered book of the Bible. 
especially in the epistles. If I were to sum up the book of Colossians, it would be with two words, supreme and sufficient. Jesus Christ is first of all, and Jesus Christ is all in all. Jesus Christ is supreme. He's first in all things. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. He's first. He's supreme. But not only is Jesus supreme, Jesus is also sufficient because he is all in all things. And that's what's communicated in chapter 3 and verse 11 where it says, but Christ is all and in all. He's supreme. He's sufficient. And because he is supreme and because he is sufficient, he is worthy of your devotion to him. And there are many people who would agree with that, that we should be devoted to Christ. And Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus Christ is sufficient. But what's often overlooked is the implications of our devotion to Jesus Christ. That if I am devoted to Jesus Christ, I should also be devoted to the body of Christ. It should be seen in your love for the church. And there's this repeated theme throughout this section of Scripture that you might not pick up on first glance. And it's this emphasis that's, it places an emphasis on the body. Look at it again with me. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for whose sake? For your sake. Verse 24. Uh, in my flesh, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body. Which is what? Which is the church. Verse 25. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me. Verse 28, so that we may present, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And who are those who are in Christ? It's the church. The church is considered those who are in Christ. So it's for your sake, on behalf of his body, of this church, for your benefit, to be, to complete those who are in Christ, to see you complete in Christ. There's not just a, a Christ-centeredness to this text. There's also a church-centeredness to this text as well. And here's what I want you to remember. You are not designed to display your love for Christ apart from love for his body. You're not designed to do that. The two are connected. And that's the essential truth that's repeated throughout the scriptures. And there are at least four aspects of this kind of devotion to Christ that we can learn from the ministry of the Apostle Paul uh, according to the Apostle Paul, the body of Christ is worthy of my suffering, in verse 24. It's worthy of my serving, verses 25 to 27. It's worthy of my speaking, you know, his, his proclamation. And it's also worthy of his striving, in verse 29. So it's worthy of his suffering, serving, speaking, and striving. Let's take a look at the first one. The body of Christ is worthy of my suffering. Look again at verse 24. It says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's two words that you could use to sum up the attitude of God's minister here, and there are the words delight and determination, or if you like, you know, pleasure and perseverance. Uh, there's a joy in suffering, and he communicates that with the first words, now I rejoice in my sufferings. There, there's a joy, I rejoice in it. And, and there's a perseverance where, uh, in this suffering where he says, I complete or I fill up, I do my share. He's committed to this. So he's rejoicing in it and he's committing himself to it. First of all, there's this, this delight, this rejoicing. He, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Uh, that word for rejoice, it's a word that means to, to thrive, to be glad, you know, to, to, to do well. You know, and it would be an achievement for most of us if we could just not complain in our suffering. You know, forget about the rejoicing. 
You know, we'd consider it a success just if we didn't complain when we suffered. And it would be understandable to rejoice after you finished suffering. You know, that's, that's when you want to rejoice, right? But the Apostle Paul says that he rejoiced in his suffering. Not, not afterwards, it was in the trial itself. And that's the purpose of that preposition, in. It, it represents himself as being immersed in his suffering and still rejoicing while in it. This is not some kind of delayed joy, but it's, it's right now. And how unnatural is that? Or put it another way, how supernatural is that? that that's something that can only come by the Spirit of, of God. And it's not that he didn't desire to be free from suffering. This letter came from prison. Uh, later on in chapter 4, he says, don't, don't forget about my imprisonment. You know, it's not like he was enjoying his time in, in prison. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So it's not that, that I, I enjoy the chains. I enjoy being, you know, uh, locked up, you know, put away. But I can still rejoice in the Lord even during my time of suffering. Because I know what this suffering is for. It's on your behalf. I'm suffering for you. And because I'm doing it for you, I can rejoice in it because I know it's to your benefit. So I'm, I'm rejoicing in your benefit in spite of what I'm suffering. I can rejoice in what you receive from my suffering. But that's not it. He also has an attitude of determination or perseverance in it. He says, I complete or I fill up in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that's an interesting phrase there. And you, you might wonder, like, you know, Paul, like, what, what side of the bed did you get up on this morning? And, you know, what, what are you doing to complete the sufferings of Christ? You know, like, it's a once and for all done sacrifice. I mean, we read about that in Hebrews, right? You know, he, he offers one sacrifice once and for all. We don't have to continue to offer up these sacrifices for our sins. You know, I thought you were the, the apostle of, uh, you know, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. You know, what are you talking about that you're doing your part in filling up what is lacking? What is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? The Roman Catholic Church has actually used this phrase to promote a view that your righteousness and sufferings actually contribute in some way to the vicarious work of Christ on the cross. That there's something that you can do, even in your suffering, that actually adds to the work of Christ. Uh, Lightfoot, the commentator, he says this, that Romanist commentators have found in this passage an assertion of the merits of the saints as a necessary consequence of the doctrine of indulgences. That somehow, you know, the saints' sufferings, you know, add to the work that Christ has done. And that somehow they can now share, you know, the, the benefits of their sufferings with, with other people, you know, for their salvation. But nothing could be further from the mind of the Apostle Paul. Actually, if you look back uh, just a couple, couple verses in verse 20, what does he say there? Actually, I'll start at verse 19. He says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Remember, we talked about Christ being sufficient. All the fullness dwells in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, as if you didn't get the point, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And that word that's used for reconciliation there is used for a complete, a full, a total reconciliation. That everything happens in Christ. It's through his blood that we have peace with God. So what is it that Paul is now saying that I'm filling up, that I'm completing, that I'm adding to? I mean, what is Paul, Paul completing and filling out? Paul suffered not for salvation, 
but in identification. He was identifying himself with Christ as a member of Christ's body, as a servant of Christ's body. Twice in this section, the church is called the body of Christ. He's the head of the body of the church. In verse 18, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. So there's this unity between Christ and his church so that when the church suffers, Christ suffers. So, so how do we add to the, the work of Christ? It's not by you know, somehow adding to our salvation. Uh, so we're, we're not adding to the, uh, to the work of the cross, but we're adding to the, the sufferings that are being presented before the world. And I'm, I, I'm now taking on the suffering that Christ would have taken on if he were still here. That, that, that I do my part in, in taking on that suffering, that I'm, I'm suffering uh, uh, in identification with Christ because I've identified myself with him. And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to fill out that, to, to, to do my part in filling that out. And this only makes sense in, which the, uh, in here where the sufferings of Christ are, are not yet complete in that sense, that, that there's still more work to do as the body of Christ, that we, we still present Christ before others. And when we do that, we will get attacked for that. There will be persecution as a result of that. And Paul's saying, I'm, I'm ready to do my part to complete that. It was already predicted that Paul would suffer for the Lord when Ananias came to Paul um, to pray for him after he was blinded by the appearance, the vision of Christ. The Lord said in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15 to Ananias, he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He's my instrument to bear my name. So that's, that's the work that's continuing, bearing the name of Jesus Christ. He's going to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So, so we suffer in the, the presentation and bearing his name that we will suffer. And the amazing thing here is that it's not only for the Lord's sake that he suffers, but it's for the church's sake that he suffers. So listen to this. Paul was able to rejoice in his sufferings because he understood that his own comfort and his personal freedom was a lesser priority than the edification of the body of Christ. That I consider your edification as more important than my personal comfort. If, if his suffering meant the church's progress in the faith, he was satisfied with that. He could rejoice with that. He said the same thing to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17. He says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. It's the, the language of, of sacrifice. I'm willing to sacrifice myself for your benefit, for your edification, for your growth in Christ. So our job is not to secure salvation, but to spread salvation, to spread the message of salvation. And Paul is basically saying that if it takes my life to see that message spread and to see your sanctification, that I'm willing to give my life for it. I have a friend in seminary. Um, he used to be a pastor in, in the Dallas area. And uh, he shared with me a story of uh, his ministry before he came to seminary. He was serving as a, as a pastor and found out that uh, one of the elders that he was serving with was um, embezzling money from the church. Actually embezzled $25,000 from the church. And uh, this same elder, after he confronted him about this money that was missing, started a smear campaign about him and his wife. This elder's wife befriended his wife and came to her as like, I'm just a friend, I just want to you know, hear your burdens, you know, share with me so I can be praying for you. And this elder's wife recorded everything that this wife ever shared, you know, kept it in a document and put it all in a public document to spread out to the church. 
you know, everything that she ever said that was like, hey, I'm concerned about this for my children or for my husband, she wrote it all down and made it public. Uh, after, you know, some of this came out, this kind of letter, public letter came out, um, some of the other elders said, hey, you know, I think you just need to take a break. Why don't you take a vacation? Let's try to deal with this. You know, we'll just give you like two weeks off so you can kind of like recover and, you know, we'll handle this when you get back. He said he came back to the church after a week and found out that the, the locks on the, the church door had been changed so he couldn't get into, his, into the church anymore. He went around to the window where his office was, looked through the window, and his entire office was cleared out. He walked around to the dumpster, found his family pictures ripped in half and thrown into the dumpster. And his books, his commentaries and all the, the books that he used, his reference materials to study, had been knifed through. Like somebody deliberately took a knife and went through his books so that they were unusable. He said he was totally deflated after this. It was, he said, I was just done. It's like the air just came out of me, like a, a punch to the gut. And after, after this time, he went back and he was sharing with his wife. And he says, I just, I just don't think that I can continue. I don't think I can go on in ministry. And his wife said, if you quit now, they've won. <laughs> she says, don't let them win. You didn't do this for them. You did this for Christ. You were serving Christ by serving them. And then she reminded him of the people that had been saved while he preached in his ministry. Think about those people that you were actually able to serve, those that grew in Christ because of your ministry. You did not do this basically for these enemies, the enemies of Christ. You did it for the body of Christ. And that sacrifice was worth it. And it was because of his wife's encouragement that he continued on in ministry, eventually went to seminary to get further trained, and now he's serving in ministry, and uh, his ministry's thriving uh, today in California. But it was because he determined in his heart that the sacrifice for Christ was worth it. It's, it's worth it to sacrifice for the sake of Christ. It's for the sake of Christ. It's worthy of our suffering. Number two, the body of Christ is worthy of our serving. Paul says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. You find this in verse 27. He says, uh, to whom God will to make known to me uh, the riches of the glory of this mystery among you, the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's not the verse I was looking for. I was looking for verse 25. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. But the whole section belongs together. I'll jump to verse 27. But here we see that Paul says that I was made a minister. I'm your servant. You know, it's from the, the, the Greek word for, for deacon, diakonos. I'm, I'm your servant. And a deacon is basically one who served. I am one who serves. And he says, I'm, I'm executing the commands of another. I'm just following my orders. He's like a, a table waiter. You know, this same kind of idea is carried over in the, the word for, for steward. You know, steward is somebody who manages the property of another. I'm doing this on behalf of another. It's not about me. It's about the one who's commanded me. So I don't make up the rules. I just follow them. And this is usually the position uh, that was uh, used for a, a household slave. That was the word that was used for a household slave. You know, this is the person who, who serves the tables. He's, he's doing his deacon work. And sometimes it was given to free men as well, but it was often used for, for slaves. It was a familiar kind of concept that uh, uh, it's familiar. Uh, you can relate it to the word that was used for uh, Joseph in Potiphar's house as a steward. He was, he was a household slave. He, he managed that which belonged to another. 
the, the job of a steward was to manage another's property. He just looked after what belonged to somebody else. And what Paul is saying is that I understand what my job is. I understand my position. I'm a steward. I'm, I'm a deacon. I'm a, I'm a servant. I, I carry out the commands of somebody else. And I, he understood that his spiritual gifts and even the message that he preached were not his property. It belongs to Christ. I've been given this by Christ to steward, to manage for somebody else's benefit. And his duty was to faithfully discharge his responsibility. Uh, over in uh, uh, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. You need, you need to be trustworthy. You need to be trusted with what's been given over to you. I, I, I like what uh, MacArthur uh, would often say. He says, we're not, the, we're not the chefs, we're just the waiters. You know, we, we, don't, we don't fix the message, you know, you know come, come in with our own meal. You know, uh, we, we take in what the chef gives to us. You know, I don't come, you know, do some home cooking and bring it in and then start serving that at the restaurant. Like, no, you, you take what the chef has provided you and you serve that. Like, like you rely on him. You do what he tells you to do. I'm, I'm just the, the waiter. I'm not the chef. I'm just a household slave. And who in his right mind would tamper with the mysteries of God? Turn back to Colossians 1 again in verse um, 26. He says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. He says, I've, I've got a, a job to do. The, the fully carrying out the preaching of the word of God and this, this mystery which has been, been hidden. And uh, we could spend a long time here, but uh, just to point out a couple things. This is a, a mystery that's been revealed. You know, the, the word for uh, mystery, uh, often we can think about that word mystery as if it's uh, something that, you know, you can never figure out. You know, it's like uh, sometimes people say, you know, it's, it's a mystery to me. As if, you know, I have no idea what this is all about, but uh, the word mystery is that which was hidden previously and has now been made known. So this is something that's been made known to me, and that's why I'm, I'm sharing it with you. It's used consistently like that throughout Scripture. It's a rich mystery. You know, God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. It's a glorious riches of the, this ministry. Riches of glory or glorious riches of this mystery. So it's a, a rich ministry that he's been given. It's also a uniting ministry, a race uniting ministry, you could even uh, call it. So he talks about uh, this mystery among the Gentiles. So even among the Gentiles, it's uniting Jews and Gentiles uh, together. So it's a race uniting ministry. And uh, we understand that uh, in the scriptures, as they speak about the, the Gentiles prior to, to Christ, uh, that they were Christless, you know, inheritance-less, covenant-less, hopeless, godless, you know, that they, they, they were without these things. But now we've been uh, brought into this mystery. We don't have to become uh, Jews in order to connect ourselves to God. It's not like we have to, you know, be proselytes of uh, Judaism in order to connect to, to the Lord. It's like now we're received as Gentiles into this, this mystery of, of, of Christ. And it's also a Redeemer-centered ministry. Uh, it's, it's Christ in you. The mystery is about Christ. It's Christ in you, which is the hope of glory uh, and finally, it's a reassuring mis uh, mystery because it's, it's hope. It gives you hope. You have the hope of glory, uh, only used here in the New Testament. And it's a hope that's connected uh, with heaven in, in verse 5. So you now have the hope of heaven, the hope of glory, because you're connected with Jesus Christ. And all this has been given to Paul. And basically, God is saying, don't mess it up. All of these riches have been given to you. And I want you to transfer them uh, without tampering with the contents. This mystery of Christ in you that you need to declare this. You need to proclaim this. 
It's through the Holy Spirit that Christ enters our hearts, that Christ is now within us as we receive salvation. And it may be easy to look at the Apostle Paul and say, well, you know, of course, he was gifted for that ministry, and, you know, you'd be right to say that. You know, he's given a special ministry. You know, you'd be right to say that. Uh, But you also recognize that you have a gift too, don't you? That God has given you a gift. God has given you something to steward. And also the, the message of the gospel is something that uh, he's given to you to proclaim, right? We're all to be disciples who make disciples, right? That, that's something that we all do. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says there's varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Each of us has received a special gift from the Lord. And your spiritual gifts are given to you, but they're not for you. You know, if I give you a gift on your, your birthday or, you know, for Christmas, you know, you can use that however you want. When the Lord gives you a gift, that's not for you to use however you want. God has given you a gift so that you could share it with others. So my question for you is, how are you doing in serving with the gift that you have? Is Christ worthy of your service? The gifts that he's given to you, the responsibilities that he's given to you? Do you consider Christ worthy of your service? Do you understand that the giftedness and abilities that you've been gifted, uh, given are not for you, but they're for the body of Christ? Do you see your job description as to to make the master of the house look good? I'm serving the master by serving the body of Christ. And even if you're never publicly recognized for what you do, that it's worth it. Even if I never get a public recognition. Nobody ever gives me the attaboy, the pat on the back. Oh, I saw what you did back, back there, that administration that you took care of for us. We just thank you so much. You know, the, the question again is like, who, who am I truly serving? I'm serving the body, but I'm ultimately serving the master. Like that's the one that I'm aiming to please most of all. So it doesn't matter what your, your job is. Every job is important. We need to steward the gifts that we've been given in the body of Christ. Number three, the body of Christ is worthy of our speaking as well. Look at verse 28. Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul considered it his primary task to carry out the preaching of the word of God, to make the word of God fully known, literally to fulfill the word of God. You know, the best kept secret is not best kept secret. You know, this mystery that he's been given is not best kept secret. It's something that he's supposed to give out. You know, it's been said that the greatest crime in the desert was to know where the water is and not tell anybody you know so here you have the apostle Paul who has the responsibility of of making this word known we have the message that saves do you understand that We, we we have the living water we have the bread of life and and are we sharing that with those who are around us Paul understood it as his responsibility to make this mystery known 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. John Wesley in his journal says the same thing. He says, I came into a town and I offered them Christ. Like that's what we do. We, we offer Christ. And that's what he says he's doing. We proclaim him. Like, like that's what I'm offering. I'm offering Christ. And as we proclaim this mystery, we need to remember that we're not introducing people to a plan. We're introducing them to a person. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the mystery. It's Christ in us. It's him that we're proclaiming. S. Lewis Johnson says he does not proclaim a system of theology, a theory of knowledge. He proclaims a person. 
we preach Christ. That was Paul's ministry. And it was the will or desire of God that this mystery be made known. It was manifested, it was revealed, made clear, so that it might be displayed before others. But it's not only for the preacher, it's for every disciple of Jesus Christ. We're all witnesses. So, how are you doing in your proclamation? How are you doing in presenting Christ before others? This is a word that means to announce, to proclaim, to make known, to preach. Two forms of preaching mentioned in this verse. We have the kind of negative side of, of preaching, you know, the admonishing, you know, the warning, exhorting. You know, we get the Greek word, uh, uh, it's the Greek word nutheteo. If you've ever heard of nuthetic counseling, it comes from that, that term. It's a word that literally means to place in the mind. You know, let me give you something to think about. You know, let me put this on your mind. And if you put it on the mind, they obviously have to know that it's there, right? So you place it on their mind. Let me communicate something to you about who Christ is. Let me give you an understanding about who Jesus is. And as a preacher, it's my job to admonish in my preaching, to give warning. You know, if, if you turn away from this, there's no other hope. There's only one way. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by him. Uh, let me give you a warning. If you turn away from Christ, there is no other sacrifice that's been made for sin. You know, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there's one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation outside of this person. Do you understand that? So, so we admonish people, you know, uh, but it's also uh, not just in this kind of admonishing. Uh, uh, he uses a, a, another word uh, here as well for what we do. He says we're also teaching. It's the, the positive side of proclamation. You know, we're, we're instructing people. You know, you, you don't just kind of feel your way into the kingdom. You have to have some kind of information, you know, some, some knowledge, some understanding. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, you've heard that, that phrase, you know, uh, uh, preach Christ always and sometimes use words. <laughs> You know, my friend used to say, preach Christ always and sometimes use amplification. <laughs> you know, it's like you need, if you're going to communicate Christ, you need words. You need to be able to communicate something about who Christ is, which means you need to know about who Christ is, right? Know about who Christ is so you can declare that to others. Preach the gospel always, and it's always necessary to use words. You need to be able to communicate that. Words are necessary because truth is necessary. We need to communicate truth. There's a content to the gospel message. So people have to be introduced to a person, not just a figment of their imaginations, not just, you know, uh, what makes them feel good. It's like, no, you need to be introduced to the truth about who Christ is, and salvation must be understood in order to be embraced. So we teach truth to men. And there's only one source that's adequate to gain truth, and that's what? It's the Word of God. <laughs> it's the Word of God. It kills me when, when ministries uh, are designed to, to draw seekers, but they water down the, the word of God. Like, like, like what, what do you think is going to save somebody then? You know, and what you draw them with, you'll have to keep them with, right? So, so what, what do you think you're saving people unto? You can't trust anything else besides the word of God to do this work. You know, salvation comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or the word of Christ. So I've got to hear the message. It's, it's through the, the speaking of the word of God. Through the word of truth, we're born again. You know, so it's through the, the word of God. We can't trust anything else to do this work. So all wisdom, you know, we find that in 
chapter 2 and verse 3, that in whom in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we, we preach who Christ is to people. It's in Christ. The power is in Christ. And we learn about Christ through the words of Scripture. So you proclaim Christ as you proclaim the Scriptures. And the purpose of our proclamation, the end goal of our proclamation, is not just to make a convert, not just to make a decision, but to see people grow up into Christ, that we would see them be conformed, that they would be made complete in Christ, so that, at the end of verse 28, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We don't make decisions, we make disciples, right? And that's what our commission is, according to Matthew 28, right? To make disciples of all the nations, to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. You know, so it's not just, uh, I want you to make a decision for Christ, I want to see you grow up in Christ. The purpose of our proclamation is to see maturity. It's that they might be complete. It's the, the Greek word teleos. It's, it's the completion. It's, it's coming to an end. Uh, it's, it's even translated in some uh, 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 passages as perfect. So if the question is, is uh, you know, what do you want me to be here? You want me to be perfect? Is that what you want me to be perfect? Yep. <laughs> we, we, we'd like you to be complete in Christ. We, we're always maturing. That's what the Apostle Paul says, right? You know, I'm always striving. It's like I'm, I'm not there yet. I, I want to be more like Christ. And, and eventually, one day, I'm going to be conformed into his image, right? That's Romans 8, 29. We'll be conformed into the image of Christ. But from now until then, we're always striving. We're always growing. You'll never graduate from needing the church. You'll never graduate from needing one another in the body of Christ because you still have more work to do. And if you're married, just ask your spouse and they can tell you that you still have more work to do. And if you don't have a spouse, just ask me and I can let you know you still have more, more work to do. We've got more work to do. We, we still need to grow. We still need to mature. And that's why we always need the word. We'll always need the word of God. You'll never come to a place where it's just like, you know what? I know that book well enough. I don't need that anymore. No, you're, you're not there yet. You, do, you need to go back because there's some things that you haven't yet understood you need to continue to grow. We're always growing, always maturing because we haven't yet reached the stature of the fullness of Christ yet. So, so we're always moving in that direction. That's my goal for this church. That should be our goal for everyone around us, that we want to see you made complete in Christ. And who, who do you want to see complete in Christ? Every man. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. That is a hefty goal, isn't it? I want to see every man complete in Christ. You know, the completion would be enough for one person. But now I'm saying I want that for everybody. I want to see every man complete in Christ. Remember John Bunyan, his Pilgrim's Progress. Sometimes we forget where he wrote it. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress in the Bedford County Jail in England. Bunyan wasn't a stranger to, to suffering. He lost his first wife. His oldest daughter was born blind. He suffered in prison for 12 years. Bunyan was arrested under what was known as the Conventicle Act in which England made it an offense to attend a religious gathering other than what was approved by the parish church with more than five people outside of the family. They couldn't gather with more than five people outside of their family. It was government overreach into the church, tried to limit gathering to five families or less, and the offense was punishable by imprisonment. And John Bunyan went to prison because he wouldn't stop talking. Christ was worthy of his speaking. Like, I need to talk about Christ. And I need to help people become 
conformed into the image of Christ. And I can't do that without speaking. I need to speak. I need to share the gospel. I, I need to preach. I need to see people mature in Jesus Christ. And that requires me to preach the word of God. I need to speak. I can't stop speaking. Bunyan was urged to quit preaching for the sake of caring for his wife and his children. To think about the miseries that he would bring upon them. And he says, I cannot quit preaching because God has called me to preach. I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. He says, I would rather suffer if frail life might continue so long until moss grows on my eyebrows than violate my conviction. And he says, the parting with my wife and my poor children have often been to me in this place as the pulling of my flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was likely to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer to my heart than all else I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I thought my blind one might undergo would break my heart to pieces. But he told his jailers, if you let me free today, I'll preach tomorrow. Actually, it was said that uh, they kept the, the door to his cell unlocked. Could have just walked out at any time that he wanted to, but he would not walk out unless he could bring the message with him. <laughs> and from the jail, the message was spread. From the, the books that he wrote while in jail. He couldn't help but to preach. He couldn't help but to speak because he couldn't help but be obedient to Christ. And that's where we need to be. We need to, to be obedient to Christ. Christ is worthy of you opening your mouth to speak. Open your mouth to share this news of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And final, final point is Christ is worthy of your striving. Look at verse 29. He says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Paul says of his own ministry that, that for this purpose I labor. That's a Greek word, kapiao, means to, to work to the point of exhaustion. I, I push myself. Until I have nothing left, you know, leave it all out on the court, right? Leave it all out on the field. I, I push myself for the sake of Christ. And he says, I'm striving for this. Striving. It's the, uh, the, the word agonizomai. And you can maybe hear the English word agony in there. He says, I agonize over this. I, I, I labor to the point of exhaustion and I'm striving. I'm, I'm agonizing. I, I, I give it my all. It's like I'm in a wrestling match fighting to make sure that the gospel gets out. Striving for the sake of those who need to be grown in Jesus Christ. That I, I expend myself for this. I, I wrestle. I fight. It's, a, it's like a contest. Anyone who says that ministry is easy isn't doing real ministry. Anybody who says ministry is easy is not doing real ministry. I remember during seminary I was sitting next to a guy who leaned over to me and he says, you know, I can't wait to get out of seminary so I can relax. <laughs> you can just be glad that that guy's not here. <laughs> he says, I can't wait to get out of seminary so I can relax. And I, I told him, you can keep dreaming. Ministry is hard work. <laughs> you, you don't think that you have to expend energy to, to minister? You know, writing a, a paper and turning it in on time is a lot easier than sitting across from the, the table of, you know, somebody whose family is about to break down, right? Like, like this is, is labor. You have to work for this. You have to labor for this. The task is too large for the mightiest saint 
back-breaking, mind-boggling work, and tempting to do this on your own strength is insane. You, you, can't, you can't serve Christ in your own strength. You, you can't fulfill these commands with your, your, your own limited resources. This is something that's too mighty for you to do. Like I said, to, make, to see one person made complete in Christ, much less everybody made complete in Christ. You really think that you have the power to do this? He says, I labor, I strive, but it's according to his power that mightily works within me. This is a monumental burden and the only power that's able to to hold this up is the power of Christ himself. He gives me my enablement. So Paul is preaching the mystery of Christ with Christ in him. I'm preaching the mystery of Christ in you because of Christ who's in me. (laughs) It's his power that's working in me that's allowing me to preach Christ to you. I I do this by his strength. And through Christ, we have the power, the energy, the strength to accomplish anything that would make a difference. Ministry done in your own strength will go up in smoke, leave you dry and empty. But those who depend on the power of Christ, they have the, the promise of Christ that, lo, I'm with you always, right? even until the end of the age. It's through Christ that we can do the work of Christ. Amen? Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for uh, this text and uh, for the encouragement that it gives to us. Now, Father, I pray that uh, we would uh, seek to, uh, to serve you, that we would strive, that we would suffer, that we would speak. Now, Father, that we would do all these things because of Christ who, who is in us, and Father, I pray that, that even when we, we do get weary, and uh, Father, um, and I know that, that it sometimes we'll have to make decisions for, for other things, but uh, in order to be faithful. Uh, but Father, I pray that we would never just make a decision because we want ease and rest and comfort on, on this side of eternity. Now, Father, I pray that, that in all that we do, uh, whether it's a work in ministry or the work in our homes, on our jobs, Lord, and uh, wherever we might be to, to serve the, the body of Christ. Now, Father, I pray that we would do that with, with your strength, with your power, that we would make decisions with your priorities in mind. And uh, Father, that you would be, be honored and glorified through our lives. Now, Father, we're so grateful that you give us the, uh, the command, but you not only give us the command, you give us the, the resources to obey your commands. Uh, you give us Christ in us, the hope of glory. And Father, what a hope we have. <laughs> And uh, we, we serve faithfully uh, on this side of life all the way until we finally reach that goal of glory. And Father, we thank you for those who've gone before us who are already there, already in glory, already shown us uh, the way, that great cloud of witnesses. And Father, we, uh, I pray that, that one day that, that we would be able to join them and, and hear those words by our Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.